Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Uh, Joel and I have been talking about evaluative outlooks and have claimed that they impact the way that we look at the world, evidence, and so on. Today we get into what I think is the most important value for Christianity, and in fact, for Rhett and Link and their stories of leaving the faith, and that is love. Now we offer some discussion on what love is, which we know is a bit tricky. In the midst of the discussion of love, we bring up some ideas that sound strange, but we all use these ideas all the time. We just may not use these words. I call them potentiality and actuality, which might sound a bit scary, but these just refer to what you are made of and who you are. And of course, love involves a drawing toward who you are rather than a mere focus on the stuff you are made of. And this isn't a small thing. The difference is enormous. And while it isn't quite stated in the podcast, you'll see that one can have love of who you are as a fundamental value through which you see the world, or you can have love of what you are as a fundamental value through which you see the world. One of these is tied to death and the other to life. And the Christian understanding of life is wrapped up with the goodness of life. Or I should say the Christian's understanding of love is wrapped up with the goodness of life, while the world's view of love is bound up with death. In the midst of all this, we also talk about how Christians tend to be plagued with Gnosticism, a sort of denial that our bodies are a part of who we are. Now, all this talk will hopefully lead us in the next podcast to talk about how love transforms how one sees the world itself, evidence, apologetics, and so forth. Now, Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Check out our site at tacticalfaith.com. We can find blogs, info about events, and other podcasts, and our other podcast, TF Radio, which includes some great interviews with some pretty smart folks. Leave us a review, ask some questions, or just contact us with some creative insults, uh, wondering at tacticalfaith.com, or find us on Twitter at Wondering Wisdom. And in both of those cases, where the O or the A would be, there's an underscore in wondering. So wondering at tacticalfaith.com and at wondering wisdom on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Uh, today, Joel and I are going to try to do a little bit of, uh, I think I think we're really going to put that wondering with an A into our podcast and the O, I guess. Uh, today, because we're going to try, to, we're going to talk a, about evaluative outlooks, but we want to talk a little. I want to sort of present the way that the way that we might talk about God and the way that uh, we've been talking a lot about how apologetics sort of gets it wrong, um, at least in some of the methods that we do. Not necessarily all the arguments, but some of the methods. And uh, we want to talk today maybe give some more concrete examples. I think the baseball example with Joel and, and his wife was a great example of really sort of how apologetics perhaps should function when, when we're trying to express the evaluative outlooks. But today, I think we want to get a little bit to the, to the what's lying beneath it and, and explain why it functions this way with sort of a, sort of a reference back to the retinal link stories um, as kind of a jumping off point. But to get us started, I just want to, I, I want Joel to just give us, uh, Joel, would you give us a quick uh, summary of what evaluative outlooks are and why they matter? Sure. <laughs> um, so evaluative outlooks <clears throat> come from the realization that we all have our own subjective experience of the world, that we all have our own way of seeing the world. And it's not just that we, we see um, I see one set of facts and you see one set of facts, but we can see the same set of facts and experience them in different ways. And that comes down to the values uh, th that we hold 
in the way we, that we see the world. So if we, um, it, you know, if we value certain things, we're going to interpret facts, uh, you know, a set of facts one way. If we value other things, we're going to interpret it a different way. Um, and evaluative outlooks are the are, are that that understanding that the way we experience the world isn't just about the facts that are before us, but the values that we hold and the values through which we see the facts. Um, and when we talk, when when Travis and I talk about evaluative outlooks, we're going to say that the goal of talking about these things is that we can have the right values as our lens through which we understand the world so that we can see the world as it is. So we can see reality as it is um, valuing the things we're supposed to value and the way we're supposed to value them and having the emotions we're supposed to have when certain things happen that in the, in the appropriate ways and the, but that's a different approach than if you just think that there, there are facts or that there um, are desires and beliefs um, rather if you make the case like we're trying to make that the world that our interaction with the world is a matter of seeing the world, perceiving the world, experiencing the world a certain way, that's going to change the way that you think about how someone changes their beliefs, how someone changes um, what they think about things. Uh, and so just really the way someone interacts in the world. Um, last time we talked briefly about uh, one of the difficulties if, in evaluative outlooks is that you kind of have these two extreme responses and you have some people who say, okay, well, even if there are evaluative outlooks, these values make it all difficult for us to see. Um, we all have different values. We need to find a way to try and focus on a handful of values. Um, and if we can focus on those handful of values, then we can communicate with each other clearly. We can know what each other's talking about. We can come to useful conclusions. Uh, but the goal is to reduce the values or to focus on a, on a very small set that we can all share um, in order for us to be able to work together. But on the flip side, you have this other extreme that wants to say, well, we all have our own experience and whenever I try to communicate that experience, it's just going to be um, incomplete. It's going to be missing something um, because no one can have my experience because no one has my life. No one has what I've been through. No one, um, you know, has all those things. And so um, we, the, what we really need to do is just kind of let people live their lives because these values are so incommensurable uh, with each other that we, 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 our experiences are so incommensurable that we just can't really talk about them in a meaningful way. And so that's how we should handle this. What Travis and I are going to be talking about today is trying to um, deal with that, with those extremes while offering, hopefully offering a sensible middle path that critiques both while also offering a constructive solution. Right. And these two extremes are, are, are fantastic to, to kind of, to work off of because one extreme is sort of the perspective that you'd have of someone who is all about objective fact, objective 
objective, objective, and there is no variation. What is, is, and what isn't, isn't, and that's all there is to say about it. I mean, you can, I mean, nobody really thinks, in fact, I don't think anybody really lives in these two extremes. People, people produce them, and of course, academics will maybe argue for them because that's what they do. Or if somebody's in an argument, they'll argue them, but nobody really lives in either one of those extremes. At least where they'll live in those extremes when it's convenient for what they want to accomplish. Right. Yes. If you criticize me for what I'm doing, I will go to the extreme of you don't understand me. I have my entire way of being is utterly whatever, and you don't have access to it. I am am who I am, really. Yeah. Which is a really interesting phrase for a lot of different reasons. Um, But uh, so, so those are the two extremes. One is something like uh, we might call it scientism, right? Where the belief that there's objective facts and that's all there is, um, even even to the point where consciousness, as we understood, is some the subjective experiences that we have and so on and so forth have to be somewhat kind of their subjective element is kind of illusory or something like that. Um, uh, and then you have the other extreme of a kind of relativism where people can believe whatever they want, and I think. Uh, based on the values that they have. And it, I think how how one might perceive what we're saying is that we're pushing for that other extreme of this kind of relativism where it doesn't really matter what the facts are because you don't have access to them anyway. So the only truth that you have is the truth that you live or experience or whatever. And that's not what we're saying. What, we, what I want to do, what I want to say is something like, or I guess the question I want to ask when we're looking at this is, is there a value that, we would consider a tr- of tremendous importance, may- maybe of the highest importance, uh, that we can talk about, uh, th- or that we should l- that we should use through which we should look to perceive facts and evidence. So, what is what what would be the value that is central to the way that we think about the world? Uh, central to the way that we think. Or maybe I should put it this way: What is that value that is so important to us that without it, we would think that life isn't worth living? And is there a way that we can perceive life through that value? And so the reason the reason why I'm saying this is because I want to I I want to try to find a value that people I, actually just let, let's let's what I want to kind of do is I want to find a value that people that people care about and talk about how that affects the, the way that we perceive the world. But I specifically want to deal with what Rhett and Link keep going back to over and over and over again. What is the value that they kept feeling like Christianity was keeping them from, from living out, uh, from acting out well? And were they right to toss Christianity in order to get to that value? So what I sort of want to do here is, is kind of a two-part thing. I want to talk about how they perceived, and we've talked about this a little bit, how they perceive, and this might get, this must, might get us into hot water. I'm, I know I'm prefacing this a lot and qualifying a lot. This might get us into a little bit of hot water. And Joel and I talked about this a little bit before, and this could get ugly. Uh, and I'm totally uh, I'm, Travis in the water and running away if that happens. <laughs> there's just be like, there'll be like 10 minutes. There's just a beep sound. Beep. And that, you know, that's what we're talking about stuff that get us into hot water. But what we, we're not intending to, what we want to say is the way that we perceive uh, I would suggest that the way Rhett and Link were perceiving Christianity, what they perceived of Christianity, was in fact keeping them from loving, particularly the way they understood love. 
yeah. So, so let me let me just try and help help make sure we're we're clear about what we're saying. What 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 I, what I think Travis is saying, he'll correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, Rhett and Link were perceiving things that they had values within themselves that led them to perceive Christianity in a certain way that was problematic, that caused these problems for them when it came to uh, living out other values. And so from their evaluative outlook, from their the, the values that they were seeing things through, uh, they were, in a sense, right within their evaluative outlook to reject Christianity, but were criticizing that evaluative outlook. Yeah, yes. One of the ways we could look at this is, remember the, the, when we talked about the world-making view and how the way we generally understand uh, our actions in the world is we have a desire, and that desire, when you get right down to the root of the desire, it's a, it's a particular kind of, it's a set of values that you possess. You have a belief uh, that you that you that attaches to that value about what kinds of actions lead to what kind of ends. And in some ways... They have they have this kind of evaluative outlook related to some sort of desire for love, uh, and I'll come back to that in a second. And their belief about Christianity, uh, again, there's there's multiple levels. This isn't so simple. There's multiple levels of interaction and back and forth going on here. But their belief of Christianity was such that it would not, if they tried to use their desire, if they tried to take their desire and and act it through Christianity, it it led to bad results. Right. Link tells a story about an LGBTQ, I'm not sure which um, content creator came up and gave him a hug and he felt like he couldn't sincerely hug him back because he was a because Link was a Christian at the time and therefore couldn't honestly love this this man, which there's there's tons there. But first of all, I want to say their understanding of Christianity, I think, was somewhat flawed and it was flawed because it it derived from a particular set of values that they held um that transformed the 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 doctrines and the ideas of christianity or and even the evidence i would say into a certain kind of form that doesn't really that doesn't really actually fit scripture the 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 hot water part here is that i think a lot of us hold a lot of perceptions of christianity that are in fact almost contrary to the central ideas now, I don't want to say everyone's a heretic. That's not that's not where I want to go. I think a lot of this is, is sort of good faith error, attempts to simplify, to make it popular and knowable and easily communic- communicable and so on and so forth. And because of that, uh, over the years, we sort of lost sight of not, not, it's not that the doctrines are necessarily different, it's that they're far richer and more complex than what we've presented them as. Okay, so there's that. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about, um, what love is, and then we'll try to understand what it would mean to look at the world through love. And in fact, I don't think we can talk about those two in separate way. I think those are just going to come together. Right. So, uh, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Uh, So do, do we have a, a good definite? I mean, love is a hard thing to define. We can go through first Corinthians 13. I, 
I've, I've liked the way that Dallas Willard defined love, and that okay. is genuinely desiring the good of another. Okay. That's a really good definition that's not clear. It, it, it remains well. it remains unclear. So so but I think I think I think it remains unclear to us because how do we perceive let's let's work with let's work with a Willard because Willard is fantastic. So uh obviously and, 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 I, and I think we can make it more clear. Yeah, and that's what I want to do. So what does it mean? What is the good of a person? How do we normally perceive that? So, or let's let's Maybe what we should do is try to try to understand it from Rhett and Link's perspective. Would well, that be appropriate? We can we can do both. Okay, let's do both. Um, I so the way that at least Travis and I are going to to mean mean that uh, I'm speaking for Travis, but I think he agrees with me. Um, is going to be uh, framed in uh, Aristotelian terms. Aristotle talked a lot about the telos of of an individual, just of all things, but especially of an individual. And can you, can you tell us what that means? Yes. I will tell us what a tell us is. <laughs> um, tell us is kind of the, um, the one way to think of it is kind of the best version of yourself, the fulfilled version of yourself, the, the self that is able to be um, fully virtuous. That's able to uh, interact well with the world um, in a way that uh, grasps the reality of the world, um, your your telos is kind of who you're striving to be, your best possible self, um, and and it's and so um, and it, like one one example of what would not be my telos is um, if you know me, I don't I have kind of short legs for for my height, and I'm a a heavy guy with bad knees. And so uh, being a world-class sprinter is, is just never a possible telos for me because I don't have the boat. I don't, I don't have the build necessary to do that. Um, now I think there's some, there is some range in, in our, in our telos. Um, but the, in, in every instance of the telos, it's, it's the fulfillment of, of who you could be the um, especially in terms of your virtue. Okay. That, yeah. And that's, uh, the idea here is there's love comes, love is not blind. Right. It in fact is built upon, now it, it has elements where it seems like it's blind because it's willing to look past failure. It's willing to look past a lack or, uh, some element of whatever, some, some weakness or failure or whatever, because it's always, it's always almost an encouraging toward. Right. And so love always hopes, always perseveres at all. You know, it always has stuff because it's always looking. It's not merely looking at you. It's also looking at what, what you are being drawn to be. And that takes a kind of a real knowing of another person to really have that sense. Even though in some sense we understand being tremendously unhealthy, getting hit by a semi is not, does not make you the best version of you. No. Right. I mean, so th there are things we obviously know, know about this that are kind of generic for all people, but then you get to, sp you start to get to, sp to specifics. There's, there is one thing that, that is a little more complex, um, and is maybe more disagreeable that I think is true for all people. And that is to remain who you are, to remain, I should say what you are, because the who, what thing is going <laughs> to probably come up here shortly to remain what you are presently 
and to act purely out of the desires that you presently have, seeking to have those desires fulfilled. That, to want you to be that way, to remain that way, is not love. Because it denies the telos. So, so another important thing about a telos is that we're not going to fully reach our telos, at least this side of the new creation. Um, and so there's always going to be room for growth toward our telos. There's always going to be development that we can do. Um, it, it, there's a, there's a quote from Anna Lamont that I think gets at this where, where she says that God loves you exactly the way you are but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. Right. And there's, and there's, and you look at this in scripture, like how does, how can Paul refer to the, all the people in the churches as saints? How can God refer to us as saints? Um, we're referred to as sons of God and so on and so forth. It's like, and you look at yourself and you say, that's not what I am. I'm garbage. Mm-hmm. No, that is what you are mm-hmm. because what you are is not what you presently are. And it's, it's what you are becoming. Like, it's sort of like if you look ahead, you see what you are, but right. it's, it's almost just out of sight, but you get glimpses of it every time. And this is, this isn't just Christianity folks. This is, this is Aristotle. This is Nietzsche. Nietzsche brings us up. This is in Plato, the constant striving to become, to, to reach an end that is just, out, just out of, out, out of reach, but itself is such a fulfillment and it makes you become what you are. I mean, Nietzsche's subtitle to his, to his Eke Homo book is how to become what you are. What do you mean? How do you become what you are? You are, I am what I am or no, you're not. The only one who is, who is, who has, uh, the prerogative to say I am who I am is God. And he did. Yes. (laughs) Because he, he is fully who he is. Right. Full stop. We are not. Now, there are elements of you that are part of it. But so so what does it mean to be stuck in this static position? It means to be, it's something like the belief that I have a set of desires that as they are right now. And I want to, and and if I can just get them fulfilled, I'll be happy. I'll be, I'll be who I am, right? And therefore my happiness and all that kind of stuff is built purely on on what I am right now, getting the stuff I want. So what I want right now is to be famous. I want to be rich. I want to be attractive. I want to be, uh, I don't know, name it. I want longer legs so that I can run fat or what, you know, I want better knees or I want, I want, I want all the things that the world has to offer. Right. Um, or maybe I just want some sleep. Yes. Um, I want a pizza. I want more of those, uh, Reese's peanut butter cup, Easter egg things, you know, I could just eat those all day and then I'll be sick for a couple of days, but you know, that's what I want. And, and the belief that getting what I, getting what I desire right now is what fulfillment is. That's a fundamental error. And here, so, so let me, let me, let me make a few, let me kind of jump around and hit a few points here. One of the errors that we have about understanding the new creation the kingdom of God coming in its fullness is we tend to think of it in terms of getting the desires that I have now fulfilled instead of becoming someone who is, who is like Christ. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because we can't imagine enjoying anything except the stuff that we enjoy right now. So we're sort, we're sort of stuck in this static view of ourselves. 
what, well, what I want is to be able to sit down and watch TV, you know, have a, you know, have some, you know, popcorn maybe, and maybe some Reese's peanut butter cups or a brisket. Keep me, I'm going to keep mentioning brisket because it's fantastic. Right. Or, or, you know, ribs or whatever, uh, beef ribs. But if you've never had beef ribs or, <laughs> or whatever, you need to try beef ribs because you've probably only ever had pork ribs, have beef ribs once. They're really good. Um, so, uh, they're really, really good. So, um, but, uh, you know, obviously make them well, but you, we, we look at, we look at the fulfillment as being something like fulfilling the stuff that we want now. And this creates this problem, right? It creates, it creates sort of a, a, well, a multi-layered problem. There's no, there's no movement to become better. I start to look at Jesus as a means of getting in, getting my stuff that I want as I am who I am, right? There's this me, Jesus is a means to the end of getting what I want. Jesus is a tool to be used to get what I want. This is a fundamental flaw in perception, period. I would dare say this is almost, you can almost describe it as the sinful way of perceiving the world. I don't know if I can go quite that far, but but this is how, if I look at persons as merely a means to ends that I already possess or ends that I possess or that, that I have desires that I have ends that I want to achieve, then I would dare say that's almost the nature of sin itself. And and if you've taken an intro to philosophy class, you're probably like, that sounds familiar. And it's very, I can't remember the guy's name. (laughs) That, That is something similar to what Immanuel Kant said as is his categorical imperative. But the, I, I think I think I would go one step farther, or maybe one no step boy. less. I'm not sure which one it, it <laughs> is. Um, but the the sense is the con- or, or yeah, the sense is that we we want to have the static view of ourselves or of other people, but yet we I think we all kind of recognize the world is constantly changing, and we. Um, we we don't we don't want people to change how they treat us. We we want to be. We kind of want to be like what we are, but we, but there's also that reality of of things shifting, um, such that when we do shift, we then want to act like who we shifted to has is who we've always been, and um, it's, there's a sense in which we can when we we don't want to change, but when we do change. That's who we've always been, and then it's a very difficult uh, way to navigate the world, or or to expect others to navigate around you when you're allowed to change, and no one else is allowed to change. But you're not to be reminded that you changed, if that makes any sense. Yeah, there's this. Uh, this this becomes really really uh, obvious when you're dealing with people who change their minds on the public on the public, in the public square. In fact, one of our discussions we had with Tremper Longman uh, or about Tremper Longman in some respects, because he just wrote a book that's probably caused a little bit of a firestorm and uh, it's on, on Christian uh, application of the Bible to politics. And uh, I forget who, who said this, but it's always dangerous to write a book because from then on you have to hold that position because this book is your position now. And you don't, you can't come out when after writing a book and saying, you know, I had a discussion with someone and everything in my book is wrong. 
first of all, the publisher's not going to like you for that. Because <laughs> it's hard to sell a book that's full of just wrong stuff, even though, I mean, Dawkins does it. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, sorry, a uh, little jab there. So, so I want, I want to mention one other thing. There's, th- t- philosophers often talk about the tedium of immortality, right? The idea that if you go to some heaven and you just get all, you can imagine a heaven of perfect fulfillment of all of your desires. You know, you're having beef ribs, one, you know, for breakfast, you're having brisket for lunch and you're hungry every time because your, your, uh, your metabolism is just crazy because, and you got a six pack and everything. Uh, and that could be beer if you like that sort of thing or on your stomach because you're in heaven, you're allowed to drink. Um, uh, or, you know, and you know, you have, I don't know, great strawberry shortcake like my wife just made last night. You have for, for dessert, you know, so on and so forth. And you can, and, and every single day you get to go do some new thing, you know, you're, snowboarding, you're skydiving, you're, I don't know, you're hanging out in Hawaii or whatever. You're doing this for eternity. But after a while, eternity though, you're just getting your desires fulfilled, getting stuff. It can't even keep us satisfied in this life. How's it going to satisfy us for eternity? Well, you've got a whole bunch more stuff. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't do it. But that's an, that's an interpretation of heaven as a place where what I am now gets its desire, its consuming desires fulfilled. And and if you've watched The Good Place, specifically the last season of The Good Place, they offer their take on how this could be dealt with in the afterlife, and which I think has its shortcomings that I think I may have mentioned in the last uh, episode. But, I mean, it, it, it is something that... Um, you know the when when those episodes came out, I saw people be like, "Huh, I hadn't thought about that before." Um, you know because we are we we have a, a a lot of us have a tendency to think that heaven's going to fulfill the, our desires that we have now without acknowledging a possibility of growth. I mean, I think one of the things that draws a lot of people to uh, what C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce is the the novel idea that we can grow and we can develop and that um, that the new creation, that heaven might be something that we have to, um, to be made ready for or before we can fully experience it and appreciate um, what what is 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 going on there. Um, now I know that's that's, uh, purgatory purgatory that's not purgatory. that's what you're saying that's, that's I, what you're saying i am not i'm not talking about the catholic view of purgatory at all right. um there, now i know jerry walls has a view of purgatory that's more like that that we could discuss sometime um but probably not today we should but, try to get him on this podcast that would be great he's a character he yes uh, Yes, yes. He he might get him. He might get us in trouble more than we get ourselves in trouble. Right, right. <laughs> just bleeping everything he says. But but uh, but back to to what we're talking about today. Um, at our core, even if we think that we want those desires fulfilled and that will make us happy, I mean, I I think if we look back on our younger selves when we did get the desires that we wanted, they didn't. They may have made us happy for a time, but if we didn't change w- with the, with our fulfillment, then we became very unhappy people. That's right. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you look at people who get everything they want, 
we call them spoiled and they tend to be miserable, right? That's the way that we might, might describe them. In fact, they're, they're, they're unhappy. Those people become unhappy, even though they get everything they want. And the reason is, is because they're not being drawn towards something higher. What really fulfills us, that experience of fulfillment is not getting something. The getting something often is, is attached to it because often the experience of achievement is, is connected with getting something, right? You get a promotion, you get a pay raise, you get a trophy, you get, you know, whatever you get praise and honor, but all that praise and honor is beside the point. What we really love, what that praise and honor gives us, and this is Aristotle again, is a sense that we've accomplished something. And it's so much better when you actually have accomplished something, <laughs> Yeah, um, which I wouldn't know anything about. So, so let's, let's say a little bit about, um, if this is if this is the one's view of heaven, let's say one's view of heaven is that one's view of the perfect the kingdom of God is that people get their desires fulfilled. Then the natural result is you're going to view love as people getting their desires fulfilled, as helping people to fulfill the desires that they have as they are right now, not helping them to achieve their telos, not not encouraging them toward that, which which by the way involves embracing them even now. But instead, it's going to be sort of like affirming them. And if I have a view of heaven, this is where things get sort of tricky. And hopefully you can follow me here. Hopefully I'm going somewhere here. Uh, if, I, if I view heaven as a fulfillment of, of our present desires, but then I hold that some desires are evil, then what I do is I, is I create this sort of law where people with the wrong desires don't belong, don't belong in the new creation because their desires don't get fulfilled there or something like that. And so let me, let me see if I can explain this a little bit better. Joel, you need to interrupt me and ask me a question to make me clarify. The point I'm trying to make is I think legalism is, is, is closely intertwined with the idea of this static view of ourselves because the law doesn't demand that we change our desires. It demands that we change our actions Right. doesn't demand that we become something different. It demands that we act differently. And, so, and now we can, we, can, we can magnify that acting differently to even trying to have the right kind of thoughts, right? Even, even to that point. So we can take the Sermon on the Mountain and just say, well, this is just the law in, and it's just made interior where we're, now we have to be even more strict, right? I can't, I can't just not uh, kill my brother. I have to not think hateful thoughts. So even though I despise everything about him, I don't want to be around him. I think smiley thoughts at him. Uh, and so, um, well, that's legalism creates this kind of tension because it's not calling us to become what we are. Just like when we look at the old Testament law, we see as a list of laws that you're supposed to obey. And the reason that Jesus needed to die is because we couldn't obey the laws and therefore Jesus takes care of it. And now we don't have to change. Is that, is that the gospel? The I gospel is we've that. been set free from sin and death. Right. We've been set. We've been set free from it. Not that now the law doesn't matter anymore. I mean, the law the law is not even a good translation of Torah. Right. Torah should probably be translated instruction. Well, what's the instruction? The instruction is calling you how Jesus saves the people from Egypt and then says, "Okay, you're my people. This is the kind of person I want you to be. These are the kind of people I want you to be." Or do you have no other gods before me? Uh, don't commit idolatry, right? That sort of thing. Don't 
you know, respect, you know, honor your father and mother, mm-hmm. uh, respect the Sabbath. Don't, don't, don't steal from one another or kill or envy, right? Come on. Don't commit adultery. Don't, don't do that stuff, right? This isn't, these aren't the kind of people I want, but it's not like, oh, well, if we obey these 10 commands, commandments, then we get in, right? He's like, you're already in. Right. I mean, at least, at least, right. I've already saved you out of Egypt, people. I mean, you're here. What do you think I'm doing? I'm trying to help you become better people. And so the idea, I think there's a connection between a static view of what I am and a law that stands external to me that I simply have to obey. Even if it ha- even if it happens in my mind, it's still external. Is, is that clear? Am I making myself clear? Because it doesn't change me. It's simply a, a, a change of my action, not a change of my desire. So, so my desires stay the same. I use the law as a means to get into heaven. Well, the law isn't sufficient because I can't quite match it. So instead of the law, I kick the law out of the place. Jesus comes in the place because he takes the law. And now I use Jesus to get into heaven to fulfill my desires. Is that, a, is that an interpret? Is that, that's clearly a terrible interpretation of the gospel, but is that not what we think? I mean, I mean, Does that make I, sense? I, I think, I think we want to believe that there is some sort of change that happens in us. And on that model of the gospel, there, there, there is a change, but it's, it's, it, it, I mean, like you, like you said, it's like, I have to stop myself from thinking, you know, a certain way. Like we, we, we focus on, on stopping things, um, as opposed to learning to, to do things correctly. If I'm a piano teacher, which I wouldn't be, but if I were, and all I did was criticize you, say, no, that's not how you do it. No, that's not how you do it. No, no that's not, not. I mean, at some point you're going to be like, I feel hopeless. Like, I, I, I'm trying hard to be a better pianist, but I just keep being told where I'm wrong. Instead of having someone show you how to do it well, how to do it correctly. And this is, that's why I couldn't be a piano teacher. Um, that right. that changes it because then you start to be focused on what does it mean to do it well and to do it to do the right thing rather than avoiding the wrong thing and those are and they, they those two things might sound like they're the same thing but they're two very different things because when you're trying to do the right thing if you make a mistake you see that as not ideal but you you learn from it and can keep going as opposed to trying to avoid doing doing the wrong thing you is very backwards focused and it's hard to progress as a person if you're just focused on not doing something wrong you need to be focused on on doing something well do on being a on on what does it mean to be a good person and and striving for that in order to 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 become a good person uh, you have to be forward looking in order to to be able to develop in that way as opposed to just being becoming better at not doing the wrong thing. Right. And I think, I, th- I think the culmination of that, if I just need to say this, cause it's such a cool passage uh, in revelation where it says those who overcome uh, will be given a stone. I should have looked up the passage cause I'm going to, I'm going to brutalize it, but we'll be given a stone with a name on it that only they and God knows. And I think in name and scriptures always has to do with what you are. I should say who you really are. And so there's almost like now you've been given the, given your true, right? This actually, st- this appears in the fantasy novels, this idea of a true name. 
Um, but ironically, to know someone's true name means something like the capacity. Once you know someone's true name, you can control them, which is interesting. Um, that's got things sort of upside down. But the idea is that you're true. You now you know truly who you are. Stuff that you've had inklings of. You've had little little flashes of uh, in times when you feel blessed, when you feel uh, perhaps what we call flow. Right, that idea of you're you're engaged in some sort of activity and you're just natural. You just fit there. You 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 and you 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 see the benefits and anyway, that's that's part of part of what it means. Those are glimpses of what we are. But the idea of this of the static set of desires getting those fulfilled connects with a bad view of heaven, a bad view of the law, and a bad view of Jesus. But it also connects with a bad view of us and a bad view of love. Because if if love is wanting what is best for someone, and we are merely animals. So what's what's the what's the what what does Aristotle say about animals, right? That the the good of an animal is to have uh, basically positive sensations, right? The experience of health, of having the right amount of food, the right kind of environment. Uh, the sensate life is a positive sensate life is what, what is good for the animals, but we're not merely animals by any means. Right. And so having a good sensate life or having simply our desires that we have now fulfilled is not sufficient for us. So this, there's this weird conflict. Link is talking about wanting to wanting to hug this person, but he he holds that scripture rejects this the view that uh, and I, I think it's the case that that homosexuality is ex- homosexual behavior is okay. Um and though so therefore he's hugging this person who in his mind is what? fundamentally fundamentally flawed. Is that what's going on? Like, what's the what's the situation when Link kicks Rhett out of his car because Rhett got drunk? What does that What does that say about someone's view? And then and then he struggles to hug this person. What does that say about someone's view of love? Well, it's, it's it it reflects some of what we learn in Christian what we learned growing up as Christians, right? Um, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. That's what our youth pastor always said as a joke. Yeah. Um, uh, even though I, anyway, I talk about people, girls who chew. I mean, you don't want them just swallowing their food whole, right? Um, oh my. I understand <laughs> it. I'm not, I'm not that stupid. So, but the idea is that you need to, uh, you know, bad company corrupts good character, right? So you want to, you want to kind of be disconnected from them. Um, but love is not, Love is not a matter of of going Amish and separating ourselves from the world. It's a matter of transforming the world. And so, and to look at the person, to look at the one who got drunk because of whatever reason, and to love to love that person and help the person become better. That's what you're that's what you're seeking. And that doesn't mean you can't accept them now. It means that you you don't look them merely as what they are now. And it seems to me that the judgmentalism that connects with legalism is a, an, is an attempt to judge people as they appear right now. So it's connected with the static view, right? Or, 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 or at the least there's no, you need to know where you stand right now, because if this is, if this is where the end is, then you're in trouble kind of thing. Um, it may allow for the possibility of improvement, but it's very much a focus on where thing where like accurately assessing where you are now and and expressing that to you, making sure you 
or the other person knows where they stand because this is this is a, a very important deal. What, what you know, excluding whatever happens in the future. Yeah, I remember. I remember when I was in college, there was this guy who who believed that if you you know you got hit by a vehicle, got hit by a truck, you know, since we talked about that already, and and the last thing you did was in in fear and maybe in pain, you squeaked out a cuss word, then you died, that you would go to hell. And I was like, wow, this, that's terrible. <laughs> right. I mean, I, mean, I, I can't imagine trying like, to live with that mindset. Yeah. The, you're, it's like that, that last moment of death, that act is frozen and you are permanently, you're permanently stuck in an act of sinfulness. Oh, come on. I mean, really? Is that, is that how grace works? I mean, obviously I don't think anybody who's really thought about the grace of Christ would hold that view. Right. But, um, uh, I mean, cause that'd be terrible. I mean, you, you have a moment of weakness and you think, it, you know, a bad thought as some lady walks in front of you and then someone shoots you right then, or you die of a heart attack. Maybe your thought is a little too exciting. And, uh, you know, that's, Wow the grace of Christ only goes, it only deals with you when you're not sinning. <laughs> no, the point, the point is it's not, it's not the grace of Christ is not about where you are. It's about what you're being called to. And it's a drawing toward that, right? Yeah. The fact that we're, in fact, what we're freed from is being stuck in what we, in what we're made out of, you might say, right? That's, say, that's part say, of what Christ. Say more what you mean by that. Okay. So, so this is, I'm hesitant to get into this because I'm afraid uh, it's going to start sounding weird. I use the language of potentiality and actuality. We could probably use the language of whatness and whoness, but then it doesn't matter what we say. It sounds weird. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, uh, l- let me let me preface it real briefly with this one comment about about the New Testament term that is often translated sinful nature. Um, and this gets us into sketchy territory, but uh, bear with me. So the New Testament, often when you read your Bible, the New Testament term uh, that's often, I think it's translated in the NIV as sinful nature, but in some other translations it comes, it's actually what the Greek word is, and the Greek word is flesh, right? But that sounds Gnostic, right? It sounds like flesh is bad, spirit is good, what I need to do is be spirit, and so the more I'm dead, the better I am. That's not scripture because death is is an enemy, therefore the flesh is not bad. So what that means is what we're made out of is not bad. Now don't get, I don't talk about tripartite and bipartite and the difference between spirit, soul, flesh, whatever. Uh, I have my own views on this. I don't think we're just flesh. In fact, that's my whole point here. You are not just a chunk of flesh. You're a person, right? So Joel is not just a chunk of meat who has two shorter legs. He's, he's a, he's, I shouldn't say anything. He's considerably taller than I am. Um, I'm just everything on me short. So if you look at someone as what they're made out of, and this includes in some sense, this includes our, not in some sense, it includes the desires with which we're working. I have to say more about that too. But if you look at them merely as that, then you see them as simply what they are. And if they're being judged by what they're made out of, then we can, we can write people off, right? This is the very nature of racism. Right, you look at someone; they have some very minor differences from you. You know, 
their whole group has a set of minor differences from you and you judge them based on what they're made out of. That's, that's what racism is. Um, objectifying someone is when you look at someone and you see them merely as an object to be used. You're seeing what they're made out of and you're trying to use what they're made out of. Now I call what we are made out of our potentiality. I'm drawing a little bit from medieval philosophy, um, using the language of potentiality and actuality. And that's kind of weird. You could say whatness. Joel and I had a little bit of back and forth about this versus the who-ness. What is someone versus, so what am I? Well, I'm a 44-year-old man who, you know, and you could go through a whole list, my height, my weight, my so-called achievements, blah, blah, blah. You could talk about all the different things, uh, you know, my DNA, how I was made, we don't want to get into that. That's weird. And all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, but, but where am I in all that? Well, you could know all that information about me and not know who I am at all. You know, a lot of stuff about me, but you couldn't know who I am to know who I am. You have to know me. Right. And, uh, a lot of misunderstanding comes from this, right? Cause you look at someone, you make assumptions about them and then they say something and you interpret what they do according to the background information you have of them, which is what they are instead of who they are. And so you misunderstand them and it causes problems or maybe it makes them look better. Who knows? Um, and so, uh, there's, so that's the who-ness, what-ness or what I would call what I like, I like to use the term potentiality versus actuality. Um, he here's, here's an important side note. That's not just a side note. It's almost the most important note. There is no stuff out of which God is made. God is fully who he is. I can almost say they are. Um, God is fully personal. We are made from dust and we are persons that are made out of dust. God is persons. Full stop. Not made out of dust, not made out of chunks of divine meat or whatever gods are supposed to be made out of. God's not that stuff. And this is of utmost importance because almost all of our arguments about God's existence are built really mostly against are built upon the idea that God is made out of stuff. Now it does, it's not obvious how that's the case, but we'll have to come back to this probably not in this episode, but if this is of any interest, we'll maybe continue it on. So, so the idea is that f flesh. So why is flesh, why is flesh always translated sinful nature? Well, it's translated sinful nature because the problem that we have is when we build upon, when we live simply in accordance with what the stuff we're made out of tells us to do. So sin is sort of like living out. It's living solely for the purposes of the stuff we're made out of versus living out who we are. And who we are, the way we generally define that is the stuff we're made out of. I mean, just look at how people define themselves, right? I have a particular sexual inclination, sexual preference, and that's who I am. Really? That's who you are? No, that's what you are. That's, that's part of what you are. Who you are is what you're being called to. Not this blind force pushing you from behind, but I'm saying a whole bunch of stuff. So um, hit me with some questions and some clarifications. So, so when, when you're talking about living you know, solely out of the flesh, the sinful nature, there's a sense in which you're saying living animalistically is 
is what sin is. And, 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 and by that, it, it's, it's an element of not living up to who we are, in, in, especially in Christ, who we are as bearers of the divine image. Um, yeah. Well, bears sounds like animals, but I understand. Yeah, yes. Bearers. Um, no, but uh, let, let me make one quick clarification of that. When we say animalistically, we don't mean running around like a bunch of, you know, dogs, right? Which we men are particularly good at. What I'm, because there are clever, you can think of us as living animalistically, but clever animalistically. It has to do with the way that we perceive our relationships to the, those around us. Is everything around us and everyone around us, including God, an object to be consumed or used. If that's the only, or to be got out of the way. If those are the only ways that we pursue, perceive them, then we're acting animalistically, even if it's super clever. Even if we're using a nuclear weapon or a spaceship or quantum mechanics or whatever to do it, it's still animalistic. Even if we do it with poetry, it's still animalistic because it's merely a, an attempt to consume, possess, control, on, based on the whatness of people and, and the so-called whatness of God. And it's the way that animals interact with the world. Um, you know, right. you, I, I'm, I'm not a pet person, but I know people who are. And, you know, people love to ascribe a lot of motives to their pets, um, a lot of good motives. But at the, at the core, you know, the, the pet is still... An animal. It's not a, a a human that bears the divine image, like. And so there's 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 something less than what we are in any pet. And um, when we talk about the fact that we bear God's image, that we we are you know we have God's image in us, that means that that there is that we are meant for more than 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 to live in that way. Um, and so, uh, I what what I th I think Travis is is, is getting at is um, that if we allow our desires as our fleshly desires to be the things that that define the fullness of who we are, this the, our our sin is not necessarily any particular action we do, but it's a failure to, to live out the divine image within us. Um, it, it is be, it is, um, I forget where C.S. Lewis says this, but he talks about, um, you know, being, being happy to be a, a, a tamed horse when we were meant to be winged horses. Um, there, there's a, it's a settling to be less than that. Now, I, I maybe Travis would, wouldn't go this route, but I'm, I, I want to say that there is something very worthwhile about understanding what someone is. That you know, it, that when we talk about evaluative outlooks, when we talk about that subjective experience of the world that no one else has the whatness of who you are does play a big part in that. And so to ignore that and just be like, Oh, like you're, you're, you're not that you're more than, you know, you're more than that. But when we talk about the more than that, we ignore the whatness we're missing out on a big part of who the person is. And so we, we have to find 
you know, th this is why Dallas Wheeler talks about spiritual disciplines, that it's not about saying the body is bad, but it's about putting the body in its proper place in relation to your spirit. And, and, and the body is good, but it's, but the, the problem is when you put the body in charge of things, it's like putting a toddler in charge of your family. I mean, they kind of do rule the family. Let's be honest. Those of us who are parents who have toddlers, they are kind of in charge, but we like to, but you know, we, we do try to set limits. We do try to, to do things. We don't give them complete autonomy and authority over everything. Um, and, and that's, but what often happens is when we use that language, we start to think that the body is bad, that our our desires that come from the body are bad, and they're they're not. But we have to order them correctly. We have to put put them in submission to the spirit. Um, and so, when we love someone, we have to love them both where they presently are and all of their whatness. We have to to fully embrace that person, but. Part of loving them is is you know like that quote I, I gave that it's not it, it's it's wanting to help them become more than that which you know we've said requires an, a relationship and if someone hasn't invited you into that relationship it's really hard for you to actually love them because you're just saying what you think their telos is rather than having a real idea what that telos is. Yeah, so th this is the complexity of the whole thing. In some ways. If I, if I meet anyone for the first time and they try to hug me in love, I'm like, wait, have we, have, are we doing this? Because to be invite the, the beginning part of love is to be in sort of, I mean, let's just use a biblical example. It's to enter someone's house and to sit down and be with them the way that Christ entered Zacchaeus's house, right? He goes into his house and what happens? Love, love manifests and Zacchaeus becomes what he's meant to be. Right, not just just a wee little man climbing a sycamore tree, taking everybody's money. He's act, he actually becomes the kind of person who really who really becomes better. And so the initial part of that is to be invited into the house, or in Jesus's case, to invite yourself in. <laughs> you know, Jesus can do that. So let me let me say so. so when we're talking about potentiality or whatness or whatever, it includes body, it includes our past, it includes our desires, it includes all of that stuff. The and none of that is bad. I mean, you may have had a bad past. You may have something wrong with your body and you may have some, some desires that are twisted, but at its heart, a lot of that we don't want to let go because those things are part of what make us. They're a part of what make us who we are because our past is a part of what makes us who we are. But it's not, we are not trapped by that. That's, that's the point to be trapped by that would be terrible, right? That's why, um, our past seeks to drive us to do bad things. If, you, if you've had a bad past or even maybe a decent past, it can cause you to have bad desires, to settle, to, to be full of hate, to be full of resentment, to be full of bad, corrupted desires. All this kind of stuff can happen. If your, your body makes you want to do things that you, don't that you probably shouldn't really be doing, not that the desires are bad, it's that they've been twisted and they're been, they've been given reign where they don't belong. The issue is when the flesh becomes king. The issue is when the past becomes king. The issue is when your desires rule over you instead of you ruling over your desires. And I don't mean rule over in this. I, I this, this is kind of a side. It's not a, it's a huge issue for me, but it's something we can't really get into, but I want to throw, throw it out real quick. It's not a matter of crushing desires and cutting them out. It's a matter of organizing your body, your past, your desires into something wonderful. 
because that's what you are, right? If Lewis talks about how if we saw, I think I mentioned this before, how we, if we saw what we, what we will become, we'd be tempted to worship ourselves. Like if that's, if, if we're going to be like Christ, if I saw what I am meant to be, you know, and, and just, just that little imagination of recognizing that God is going to transform us and give us spiritual bodies. By that, he doesn't mean non-physical. He means bodies that are obedient to the spirit, that are truly formed and made wonderful. And you can look, it does, that's, that's coming from scholars reflecting on that, by the way, that's not just me making stuff up to fit my non-Gnostic views, but we have a physical resurrection, but the body will be transformed into a body that obeys the spirit. And so we will become what we're meant to be. Maybe we'll always sort of be becoming that, but we're going to be broken free from the power of sin. And the power of sin is the inability to break our who-ness away from our whatness. Would that be, would that be okay to say? Or, or the ability for the, or the, the inability for the who-ness to reign over the whatness. Yes. We're being trapped by the whatness. And you could see this. I, I don't know if this is appropriate, but, but I think it is. You have Ad, Adam and Eve in the garden. God's telling them, hey, don't eat from the trees, so on and so forth. And then suddenly Adam and Eve, who were given reign over the entire world, a beast of the field, a clever beast of the field, overtakes them, defeats them, deceives them, and they submit to a clever beast of the field, right? I don't think it's, now, everyone's like, well, that's Satan. That's not a beast of the field. So Genesis 3 describes it. Beast of the field, clever, a very clever beast of the field, deceives them. Now, I'm not saying it's not Satan or anything. I'm saying that I'm taking what Scripture says right there, and that seems important. We've submitted to something over which we were meant to reign. It doesn't make beasts of the field bad. If you ask my wife, snakes are bad, period. It makes, but it does make submitting to them. We're not meant to be ruled over by the world. That's called death. Look at what happens when you're ruled over by nature. Right. And this is, by the way, what scientism says. We're just part of nature. And you got the circle of life, which just means that you die. Right. Sorry, your ancestors don't go in the stars and look down at you like the Lion King says. You just <laughs> die and become fertilizer for the next group. Right. Well, that's just natural life and we should just embrace it. No, it's not. Na- I mean, it is natural. It ain't right because it undermines our actuality. Because what is death? Death is you being reduced, being all, all hints of your whoness disappearing into your whatness. Right. Which means death is the absolutely natural result of submitting to your whatness. So this is going to be sort of crazy, but let me say it. The love that Rhett and Link want to show to people is the love where those people can submit to what they are. So the love of Rhett and Link, the love that the world calls for us to give to people is loving people to death. Loving their natural, uh, scare quotes, natural trajectory toward being reduced to nothing but the stuff they're made of. That's not love. Love is for you to take all the stuff you're made of and transform it into a beautiful, eternal, glorious person. And that's what God's calling us to. So love has to be a pushing toward that. We haven't even got to the apologetics part, even though I think there's some apologetics worked in here. 
Um, what I what I wanted to get to, but we're already at an hour, was to talk about. You probably have something you want to throw at me, Joel, because I'm talking crazy talk here now. <laughs> um, uh, it's just one look. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Okay, sorry. A uh, little Zoolander there for you. Not that you should watch that movie. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, um, the the uh, what what I'd be interested. In, I mean, if we've got some of this, but how does our perspective on the world, on science, on the evidence, and everything? How does that transform when we begin to take love as fundamental? Or I should say, maybe we can put it this way: when we begin to allow the actuality, the personhood of people to be a fundamental, the fundamental aspect of their existence. So if I look at you as you're a product of evolution, you're a product of material causation, you're a product of blah, 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 and that's what you are, and you just happen to have a mask on it that looks like a person, that gives me an entirely different view. And if I start arguing from that perspective to try to prove God, the only God I'm capable of proving from that is a God who's made out of impersonal stuff that happens to have a personal face. And by the way, that aligns perfectly with legalistic Christianity. It aligns with a euthyphro view of God, a God who whose fundamental, whose fundamental characteristic is power, the power to kill and destroy and selfishness and all that other stuff that everyone says about God when they're criticizing God. And also what a lot of people say about God when they claim to be glorifying him. Um, that's all that that all becomes central if I look at God as made out of stuff. But if I look at God as fundamentally personal, then the central characteristic of God, which is clear in First John, it's the only thing where God is is connected with a simple linking verb, is God is love. Amen. But I want to know what maybe we'll get to this next time. If I start looking at people's personhood as as fundamental to reality, how does that change how I look at all the evidence? Is it perhaps the case that the way we even look at scientific evidence, not, not that we're going to look at, I'm going to start looking at like, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I'm going to add three to one side or something. Um, I'm not talking like that. I'm talking about the way that we place that evidence in our, in our, in our list of thing, in our list of truth seeking pursuits our epistemology, is it going to weigh how we look at the evidence differently? What are the values that give rise to scientific views? And Joel and I have had a little back and forth on this. I'm not sure we've come quite to an agreement yet, but um, but what are the values that give rise to, to science? I think at the very least, one of the values is to not see persons. Or I should say a value, part of the value gives rise to a perspective that ignores personhood. And I can give clear examples of this, and maybe I will next time. Um, uh, what is the value that sees personhood as fundamental? I have a feeling that, I mean, those seem opposed and one must submit to the other as the flesh must submit to the spirit. Right. What I'm saying in a way is faith is primary and all other sciences are a footstool for the, okay. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. It's inside joke sort of. Um, so what, what I want to also to make clear because I, I don't want someone to hear what you just said and be like, so the body doesn't matter. The, the stuff. I am not up, saying that at all. And then you're I'm not and, saying and science I, doesn't matter. I, I know he, he's not saying that he's not, he's not going down a Gnostic route. Um, but one of the things that, that sometimes seems to happen 
is people react against the view that Travis put forward by saying, okay, well then the body doesn't matter. It's just personhood is just who I am. And, and, you know, we're, we're going to go down the, in, in, in the next episode, I assume we'll, we'll go down the, the path of talking about persons, at least as the way that, that we've understood them are, are both physical and spiritual beings that, that these cannot be separated from one another. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's the body is not bad. It's the body is in submission to the spirit and the we, body is, is the body can't be bad because it's essential to who we are. Exactly. And Christ's body was raised. Like everyone who says your, your spirit goes up to heaven and your body goes into the ground. The tomb was empty people. And that's supposed to be a, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. We're going to be raised like that. Your body doesn't stay in the ground. At least, at least not 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 in the end, right? I mean, it's going to stay there for a while, probably, yeah. or turn into ash and tossed into the Boston Harbor. <laughs> but what, all, all that to say is, is we we're trying to walk the line of saying you aren't just your body, but your body isn't bad, and 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 it's a tough line to walk because as humans we we tend to. Um, tend towards universalizing ideas. And so when we, when we hear that the body is bad or that, you know, the body has bad results, we just want to be like, well, we, we just ignore the body. And that, that's not what, what the answer is. Or we want to say that the body is all there is. And, and, and so we ignore any, anything more that your body could be anything more than that, that you could be more than your, your desires. Um, it's, it's not either one of those. It's a, it's a both and, which is tough to hold. There's a tension that, that we're going to be talking through and, and how that tension relates to apologetics, both in the way that, that we approach evidence, but also the way that we approach our interactions with other people. Right. And, and there's a, there's, it's not just an analogous, but I think it's closely connected. There's two different bad ways of, of looking at evidence. One is science. What tells us about the physical world is the only way to truth. And then there's the other side that says we can just ignore science and just what I, what I experience is truth. No, I mean, science, you know, if you just want to, you can't just jump off a cliff and fly, right? There's a reason why you can't do that. Um, and, uh, and so those are analogous to the idea that the body is all there is. And there's some sort of who-ness that I am that doesn't have to be concerned with the body, right? The Gnostic, the Gnostic, the materialistic view and the Gnostic view, they're both, they're both wrong. That's, that's kind of what we're, we're trying to get at, but there's an element of fundament. There's a fundamental element of your, in fact, I think both of those deny personhood, by the way, strangely enough. Yeah. Um, they're actually both missing personhood. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, how does this affect apologetics? Um, and, uh, and yeah, you don't understand me as saying anything Gnostic because I despise all the Gnosticism that has heavily infected the church today. It has had serious deleterious effect on my life because I embraced it blindly for too long. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's a little bit of passion of mine. So, um, so we're going to have to develop this more. Hopefully this, this gave some sort of more clarification of where we want to go. We've, we've talked a little bit about really all we've tried to talk, talk about is what love is. 
particularly and even then, I'm not sure we're, how clear we've been. Yeah. I, but I, I'm, I'm, we, we may not have been clear in our definition, but we hope that we've pointed you in a direction to see what we're trying to get at when we talk about love. Yeah. And hopefully, at least, uh, baby, we didn't hurt you. <laughs> All right. Okay. Joke with the song. I'm, I wouldn't refer to any of you people as baby. Unless, unless you are a baby. Okay. Uh, on that note, we should let's stop. Um, <laughs> this is Travis. This is Joel. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>